Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay, How to Seem Virtuous Without Actually Being So, Alistair McIntyre is going to criticize a point of view on moral education, which he readily identifies as inspired by David Hume. Now, he will say a little bit later on, this isn't exactly that of Hume, but it is broadly Humean, and this is identified as one which frames the understanding of the virtues primarily in in terms of pleasure and pain, mutual sympathy, and shared conceptions of utility, and which actually stands in the way of proper moral development. Now, he's going to be criticized. He sort of forecasts. He says the characterization of this latter contrast is bound to evoke two immediate responses. First, it's unlikely that anyone has failed to notice that what I have characterized as the genuine virtues are the virtues as understood and practiced by the adherents of an Aristotelian point of view. McIntyre, by the time that he's writing this, does identify as as an Aristotelian. Later on, there's going to be some additions to this, a Thomist Aristotelian. But he thinks that basically Aristotle has things right. And he arrived at this through a lot of thinking and study and dialogue himself. So he says, I'm presenting that point of view. And what I have presented as counterfeit virtues are the virtues as understood and practiced by the adherents of a Humean point of view. And so one criticism that you know, he imagines is going to get raised against him is that he's actually engaging in what we call question begging. Now, I do have to pause on this because the meaning of this term has changed somewhat in recent decades. So a lot of people will use begging the question to mean leaving questions open, not addressing certain questions. That is not what McIntyre means here. Question begging in the older traditional sense of the term is actually a logical fallacy. And it consists in making assumptions that are what your argument is supposed to prove. So question begging is supposed to be a very bad thing to do. Shows that you're just coming from a particular point of view that you've already decided, you've already got preconceptions. And interestingly enough, what is McIntyre's response to this? He doesn't say, I'm not question begging and here's why. He actually says that to the this accusation of question begging, I plead guilty, but it in no way affects the principal point at issue. So he's willing to say, okay, you got me there, but what is the principal point at issue? Well, he says, suppose we were now to reverse the terms of the characterization and rewrite the chapter from a Humean standpoint, treating as genuine virtues, those taken to be such in a treatise of human nature, one of you know, Hume's most important works. And as mere duplicitous counterfeits the qualities presented as virtues in the Nicomachean ethics, except insofar as they on occasion coincide with the virtues as described and praised by Hume. What would happen if we change things around that way? So he says, well, there are going to be some constants that remain the same no matter what. First of all, the two theories are going to be different from each other. 
Whether I beg the question or don't beg the question, whether I start from Hume in a question-begging way or Aristotle in a question-begging way, it doesn't erase the fact that these two points of view are radically and incompatibly different on what the virtues actually are. So he says the extent and nature of the difference between the two standpoints. The other thing that doesn't change, as he says, is the theory taking itself as correct. So he says, the second is a matter of how the Humean, quite as much as the Aristotelian, is bound to treat the virtues as prescribed by rival views as counterfeits. Now he points something out that's quite important here. And if you want to know more about this particular idea that he's got, go to After Virtue, this very important book that McIntyre published in the early 80s, which will talk specifically about this. And you could also look at Whose Justice, Which Rationality, which addresses Hume at greater length. So he says, Hume himself, it is true, was blind to this, supposing as he did, that agreement about the virtues among mankind is in fact overwhelming, even if disguised by the vagaries of social circumstance. This is why I just call the position I've described Humean rather than Hume's. So, you know, Hume doesn't get that. But a, a Humean in the present should say, yeah, Aristotle got things wrong. We Humeans have things right. And McIntyre is going to say, you know, somebody could also point out that you're not addressing enough. You, you talk about Aristotle, you talk about Hume, but there's many other conceptions of the virtues as well, right? I've been arbitrarily selective. And he says, there are, it may be urged, other rival accounts of the virtues deserving of equal attention. Yeah, stoic, for example, utilitarian, whatever. And then he says, all right, I'll grant you that. I could have talked about others. But here's the thing, you bringing that up, that doesn't count as a criticism against my argument. That actually strengthens the argument that I am making here. Why? In each case, it will turn out that serious and systematic practice of what each such account takes the virtues to be presupposes and embodies the theory in question so that each such theory must be understood as a theory articulating and justifying one specific type of moral practice, each such type being in key part incompatible with and antagonistic to other such types. So if we took the Stoics, we would look at the, the virtues in ways that are sometimes similar to how Aristotle does, but also in ways that are radically different. And we would say, well, the, the Aristotelian is espousing some counterfeit virtues. Seneca actually says this about anger in the book on anger. It's a prime example of that. And where McIntyre is going with this is a claim that, he, again, he makes an after virtue as well as many other places. There is no theory neutral, some perfect, we're going to, all the theories will fit into this pre-philosophical, not already engaging and doing some philosophy and adequately determined account of the virtues. If you want to understand the virtues and not in a superficial way, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, you got to have a theory. You got to do some philosophy and it's got to be adequately determined. It's got to say some things that are actually giving you guidance about the four key questions that McIntyre raised earlier in the work. He says, the only account likely to be presented in such a masquerade, this is the thing that he's making a general argument about, will be the significantly indeterminate, usually tacit account, meaning silent account, of the virtues embodied in the rhetoric of contemporary commonplace usage. When people talk about the virtues, but 
don't really know what they're talking about and don't mean an awful lot by it, but are making essentially an appeal to us feeling warm and fuzzy when we hear people talking about bravery or integrity or generosity. And we say, oh, okay, great. What does that actually mean? And then it gets very vague after that. So if we take on robust, substantive accounts, these are going to be rivals to each other and mutually antagonistic. The Humean says the Aristotelian is wrong about some stuff. The Aristotelian says, no, the Humean is wrong about some stuff. And what are they differing on? Well, the accounts of what it is to have and to exercise a virtue. And Makatar points something out. So we can have these theoretical accounts and they are going to be tied to ways of being, forms of community institutionalizations, practices, and moral education. So he says they require as their social counterpart, because we exist in societies, rival and mutually antagonistic institutionalized modes of moral education. And then he says, all right, let's think about how Aristotelian and Humean modes of moral education would differ from each other. So in all cases, it's going to involve learning to distinguish genuine virtues from their counterfeits, their facsimiles, the things that people say are virtues but aren't really virtues. So, you know, for example, if you think about David Hume, one of the virtues that people had extolled prior to him, which he says, well, this isn't really a virtue. It's actually kind of a vice. Humility. He calls it a monkish virtue, right? And he means that it's actually not a virtue at all. It would be a counterfeit. You know, and we could talk about how Aristotle views certain things as not really being virtues, even though people praise them, you know, going out on the battlefield and running into people without actually thinking about the dangers involved. That's not really bravery. That's fake bravery that we call rashness or foolhardiness, right? So this is the sort of things that we're talking about. How do the different accounts differ from each other? Well, Huge difference between what sort of value, what sort of consideration we're supposed to give pains and pleasures of other people. The Humean point of view is really taking pains and pleasures of others as being particularly important. He says a Humean will want to inculcate in his or her pupils a general responsiveness to the pleasures and pains of others whatsoever they are, and more especially a responsiveness to what in the social life of his or her own time and place is such that others are generally pleased by it or generally pained by it. Now, the Aristotelian is not going to say, oh, I don't care about pain or pleasure at all, but they are going to take into account what pleases or pains different kinds of people. So McIntyre brings up several different ones. The virtuous person. The virtuous person functions as a kind of index. What kind of, you know, things should we take pleasure or pain in? By contrast to the person at the other end, the vicious or the immature or the acratic, the person who can recognize what the good is, but doesn't do the good, or recognizes that things are bad, but ends up doing those bad things anyway. They take pleasure and pain differently. Hume, in a Humean perspective, doesn't really 
address that. So that is a really important difference here. There's also going to be differences over the role of practical reason. You know, you may be familiar with Hume's very famous quip that reason is and can only be the slave of the passions, which is not actually Hume's full perspective. It's just something that sounds good. But a Humean perspective does say that reason is not enough to actually motivate us in the right way to moral behavior, to developing and exercising the virtues. Aristotelianism has a much greater role and scope for properly developed practical reason, which depends to a certain extent on the next big difference, maturity. How do they look at maturity? For the Humean, not really that important of a topic. For the Aristotelian, absolutely important. If you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, there's this rather strange claim that you can't really teach ethics effectively to younger people. Why not? Because they lack the maturity, the life experience, the control over their passions that are needed. And Aristotle actually says something that McIntyre reinforces here. Some people are young in years. Some people are young in their minds. They are immature as human beings, even though they've reached an age that we claim to be maturity. So he talks about this here. Training in the exercise of practical judgment requires a particular kind of appropriation of moral experience, something unavailable to the immature, both by reason of their lack of a sufficient range of experiences and by reason of their as yet insufficient training and disciplining and redirection of the passions. And so he says that, you know, if we look at our political leaders, many of them are quite immature in this Aristotelian sense. And he says, what you need to learn is how to conceptualize and classify so that in practical reasoning, one's descriptions of the situations and issues on which universal moral truths concerning the virtues have to be brought to bear are in the appropriate form. If you don't do this, lacking this capacity, you're not going to understand two things. What generalization are appropriately to be brought to bear and in particular situations, nor how to generalize, this is the second thing, from particular experiences. This is part of the development of practical reason and it's tied together with maturity. Aristotelians and Humeans, very different positions on this sort of thing. He also brings up another issue. The theories are going to have not only differences in the theory and the content, we're also going to have to have an effective background in order to practice them. And these are important questions. And McIntyre actually suggests that, you know, if we're going to be Aristotelians, we're going to be at odds with liberal democratic capitalist societies and some of the governing assumptions behind them. Doesn't mean we have to like go off and live like hermits in a commune or something like that, or all by ourselves in a cave. But there's going to be certain tensions there that may not be there from a Humean point of view, right? And then he says, it's also worth noticing at least one example of the different conception each view has of particular virtues. And he picks one that both Hume and Aristotle think is really, really important, justice. Aren't they on the same page? They both think that justice is an important virtue to cultivate, but what do they mean by justice? 
is the account that Hume is providing in his masterwork, The Treatise of Human Nature. Is it the same account of justice as Aristotle is providing in book five of the Nicomachean Ethics? And McIntyre, as somebody who knows them very well and has taught them for decades and written upon them, says, no, it's, it's not the same conception at all. He says, for the Aristotelian, justice is necessarily a matter of desert and merit, desert and merit in respect of contributions or failures to contribute to the common life of a political community through which only human beings can achieve their good through that cooperative friendship, which is itself a central virtue. And then he says, for a human, it's not like that at all. Justice has nothing to do with desert or merit, though for a different reason. And so he's not going to you know, spell it out in detail here, but you know, you're welcome to check out what Hume actually has to say about this. And so he says that moral education is going to be understood quite differently in both cases. Coming back to the maturity thing, as he closes out this section, he tells us that moral education for the Aristotelian is going to have to proceed through two different stages. One of these is going to require that the Aristotelians provide for the education of their own young from their own point of view. And this is what, what Aristotle has provided for us. What the young will have to read, for example, will have to be prescribed. There probably is going to be a certain kind of censorship. They're going to have to learn how to not follow their inclinations, their instincts, and to move on, transform their desires into something better. So he says like the first stage of such education is going to be one in which for Aristotelians, the acknowledgement of the teacher's authority on moral questions will be crucial. You have to do that. And if you don't do that, you're not going to develop as an Aristotelian. So, you know, what implications would this have? Well, we, we need to appoint teachers on the basis not just of their knowledge, but their moral character. If we want to do a genuine moral education. Now, he doesn't say how the Humean would approach this, but, you know, we can say based on what we know about Hume that this is probably going to be less of an issue for Humeans. And it's certainly not going to be an issue for people who are engaging in the commonplace moral rhetoric that we've been looking at in this article as well. So there's some pretty important differences between an Aristotelian point of view and a Humean point of view, both of which are substantive ethics, both of which are systematic, both of which are not pre-philosophical, they are very much pre-philosophical, and are rival versions of accounts of the virtues and how reason works and what it ought to look like in practice. And, you know, again, McIntyre, perfectly willing to say that we are question begging to some extent. You know why? Because you can't avoid it. You have to embrace some account or incoherence or some superficial account that doesn't actually answer anything for you. So he's endorsing an Aristotelian point of view, but he points out that even if you endorse another stoic, Humean, utilitarian, you're going to be embracing some point of view and you have to still distinguish between genuine virtues and their counterfeits. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.